right. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Take your seats, please. Thank you. We serve a good God, and the devil can go to hell. But none of you. Thank you, guys. You did an excellent job. One of the best worship teams I've ever heard, honestly. Amazing, really amazing. You guys are very privileged and very blessed. For those who don't know me, my name is Ed Trout. I'm husband of one wife for 46 years. And I have three children and 10 grandchildren. And I live in San Antonio. You say, well, you don't sound like you're from these parts. I'm not. Uh, my mother exiled the Holocaust in Germany in the time of the Second World War. She was eight years old with her family, got in a refugee ship that brought them to Africa. So I'm what's known as a born-again Jewish African-American. <laughs> they ain't nothing like the real thing, baby. <laughs> but I was born and raised in, in the most southern tip of Africa. I just got back on Thursday from there. And I got born again when I was 13. And uh, this, is a very, this is the greatest nation on the earth at the moment. And uh, this, in this country, we have over 300 million people, but both China and India have more. They have many more people. There are many countries that have many more than we do. And yet we are the most wealthy, most powerful, most everything. And it's only because of God. You may not use your cash much, which is credit cards, but your cash, all your notes say in God. Not in Allah, not in Buddha, but in God. We trust. And uh, this offering went on seemingly long this morning, and some of you might be irritated with that. And I understand that. I, I get it because a lot of churches, uh, they wear people down because they need to keep a flow of finances. But that's not what this is about in this house. America's great because they honored God. There is no nation that gives like America. When we have a crisis of hurricane force and destructive forces in this nation, nobody comes to help us. But when they go through a crisis in other nations, we send all kinds of help. They criticize this nation, they run us down, they speak evil of us, but they're too happy to take our money. All over the world, including the Eastern, Middle Eastern people take billions from us. And this country is a great giving nation, and that's why the Lord has blessed this nation. When Obama was asked several times, I watched the news, having been in his time of office, went from just under 10% international debt to over 100%. The way he was, they asked him what was, he always changed the subject. When he came out of office, they discovered oil in Nebraska and Texas, the volume of oil is the greatest collective amount of oil. <laughs> all the nations together with all their oil couldn't even go, come near to the amount of oil they've found. They're not using it, don't need to use it right now. But it's always the wealth of this nation that God keeps blessing. God has blessed this nation, there's no question. And it's because you give us. I'm standing here today, a born again Jew called to the prophetic ministry because of America. America sent a Holy Ghost man called John G. Lake. 
from the Isusa Street in California revival. He came to Southern Africa and began to preach the gospel. Millions of people got saved and formed an organization called the Apostolic Faith Mission, which is equivalent to the Assembly of God here. It's from that that I got saved, born again, introduced to the Lord because of such people. So I have an indebtedness to this nation. And so I'm here because I am called of God to be here, not to because to escape or because it's better here, but because I have a message of life and a calling to raise up healthy New Testament kingdom-minded prophets. Not weird, not strange, not mystical, but people that will build God's kingdom. And so when I hear the offering going on long, I'm, I'm hoping that your hearts will get it, because when you get loosened from certain things, the prosperity comes in your own life. To pay this building is not you that they're asking you to, so you give more. If we turn loose the spirit of giving in the house, God will raise up funds in the most unusual places. The most unusual places. Right close by in a place called Louisville, you may have heard of it, I used to preach, I preached, ministered a few times in a church there, uh, Pastor Roberts, and he says the, uh, I believe it's Roberts, I've forgotten now, and his son took over the church, and they were very much focused on the, on the poor and the street people. And the older man who's now gone to be the Lord, he said he was so tired of having such poor people in his church, he was asked God if I could just have one millionaire. And so he met a man on the plane, and he introduced some things of the Lord to him, and he said, if you could just heal my casa, I'll come to your church. This older man had lived in Louisville and was tired of being poor. At the age of 65, he borrowed money against his second social security check. And he did the only thing he knew well, and that was to fry chicken. You may have heard of Kentucky Fried Chicken. I'm not sure if you've heard of over here, but it went worldwide. And he died a multi-multi-millionaire from 65. Didn't need the education, didn't need money, didn't need, because you've got that loser mentality, well, I'm already this old, I've got tried everything. Well, he, he borrowed money to fry chicken. So don't tell me God can't. The kingdom of God comes in a can. And when you, we learn to do what God says, then he'll turn it loose. My other concern, I'm sorry to get into this topic now, but I, I heard about my, the pastor, and you have an amazing pastor in this house. It's not, it's not his preaching skills that I call amazing. It's when I hear his talk with the heart that he has, a heart of after God and always has that, and, and he's not here for, to build a big church or to make a name for himself. He's here to extend God's kingdom, to keep moving it forward. He loves, he really loves the Lord. And I, that means a lot to me. When I, but when I hear him get up and say he's looking for a, to help each one to be debt free, each individual to learn to be victorious like that, then immediately my Jewish nature rises up inside of me and I want to get a hold of my American family of God and say, okay, You've got to learn to give and also become a receiver because you guys sow seeds and walk out there and there's no expectancy for a return. Why would you sow a, why would you sow a seed and not expect a harvest? You need to start calling your harvest in. But, but 
most of you here that are not prosperous yet, it's because you unwise stewards. It's the most unusual country when it comes to money. From Africa I came, and they kept on sending me credit cards I didn't ask for. Kept on, over. I just kept throwing them away, and they kept on sending them. And I've seen other people, they take a little stick off, and they activate that card eventually, and then, and I've heard them say, I will, I'll just use it this month, and I'll pay it off right away, and just, just so I can get this, this Christmas time, or get this paid for. And then I've seen years later, they still have that same credit card, and they activated it at 18%, but they couldn't give God 10 and they're still paying it off. And then I hear other people saying, well, he's got to pay the minimum. And, I, and, then, I, and then I hear people talk about refinancing their house. It has to be a Gentile thing for me. Because my Jewish logic tells me it's foolishness. Because the, if you buy a house for $100,000, by the time you've paid your mortgage for 25 years, you have paid 300000 which is very normal. Because it's called compounded interest. But that's, we all understand that. But if the first 10 years, because it's compounded, you're paying interest on interest on debt, and that's how the biggest part is in the beginning, and you're paying very small amount of your capital off as you go, and as you're reducing the capital, you begin to pay it more and faster. So when you get to a point where there is so much interest already paid into the bank, they offer you refinancing at all kinds of appealing, only short-term looking advantages. And you have to be brain damaged to refinance your place instead of paying it off. And so to be a good steward, you've got to get a little wisdom and you've got to start making war on your debt. If you have to make debt, from the day you walk out with that debt in your pocket, with its house, car, whatever it is, you make war on it. Because my American family of God, when they have surplus money, they want to allocate it to something else, whether it's a vacation or something new, something else they want to buy. Instead of taking that money that's excess and start putting it into that debt to kill it as quick as they can, you will find a whole new strength and dominance of power when you've got your debt paid. It's incredible when you have a check and you have all this money left over. You don't, now you guys are living on such a thin budget, going from credit to credit. This is my American family. So I'm here to ask you, so if we can have some education in the church about, especially this one, because you are givers. You are givers, and I'm thankful for that. That's, you have battles won. If you're offended at the teaching on giving, it's because you're not a giver. And so I always tell pastors, go ahead and teach in it, because the people that are offended don't give anyway. You've lost nothing. <clears throat> but if you keep teaching on it, even the ones that don't like it, the word gets into them eventually, and it begins to produce life. It may take years sometimes, but when the light goes on, because I'm Jewish, you know, we have a whole different outlook on money. When I hear about the tithing, and I had a lady talking about what they decided to tithe, for a Jew, we, we, don't, we don't discuss tithing, because tithing is so inbred in us. Uh, we're born with it, it seems to me, and because before there was an Israeli nation, Tithing was already instituted by Abraham. He meets this king that he asked to help fight a battle for his nephew, Lot, and they go. And then when he comes to the Salem, which is where Jerusalem is, he finds this man's actually a priest. He's worshiping God. And he's so moved by this, he wants to honor this, this anointing and this man of God called Melchizedek. 
That's why the scripture says Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek, a king and a priest. It's very, very rare. And so he tithes to Melchizedek, and that's where tithing, he set aside an amount for God to honor the Lord. And so when Israel introduces a nation, it was normal from Abraham already to tithe. There wasn't a debate to tithe. It's normal. And then you guys talk about sowing and reaping, which is so unusual to me. As I said, comical, because my family go out that door. They've sowed a seed, but they have no expectancy. I've watched farmers, when they go to the store to buy seed, they'll tell them, I've got eight hectares or however large my land is, and they'll calculate how much seed they need and to get the harvest they're looking for. And if it's too much money for that, for that seed, I can't buy two tons. How about I buy one ton and I'll spread it out? It's not going to give you a bigger harvest. You determine your, your harvest by, with the seed. You can't use little seed to make a big harvest. So, and, and this is the thing. God's not mocked. You heard him say that because whatever you sow, it's not, you don't have to be a Christian. You don't even have to be a believer. Whatever a man sows. And so whatever seed you're sowing, it's going to come back. And the difficulty is bad seed. I've noticed grows anywhere. It's the good seed you've got to nurture. If you drive on a high bridge here in this, in this county, on a high bridge, there are large stalks of weeds in the cracks on those bridges that nobody planted, nobody watered, and those things are thriving there. They are bad seed. You get mad and rude and do some ugly things in your life, that bad seed comes back to you in a hurry. But the good seed you've got to nurture. You've got to take care where you sow it, how you sow it how you nurture, when you sow it, all the principles, because now you're looking for a harvest. You're anticipating and expecting. So I'm asking as my family today, when you go out that door, to anticipate whatever you sow. We Americans have been absolutely reprogrammed to tip. There is no nation on the face of the earth that tips like America. We tip and we already go to a restaurant. Am I boring you? We go to a restaurant. I'm sorry, I, Got, this is not in my message. I'm just got on those things. I heard you talking about it. I go to a restaurant, and if the steak is $28, you know you're going to pay tax on it, and you know you're going to have to, there's a portion that goes to the, to the person that serves you. Of course, it's gotten so bizarre. Now you buy an ice cream, and they turn that screen around, and there's all those little tips on there. It's like, why, why am I tipping you? Why? What did you do that I have to tip you for? I don't get it. You know, it's the strangest thing. So we tip consistently, and we are so ingrained in tipping. So when we come to church, unfortunately, that thing is so ingrained in us, we give an offering, we call it an offering or a, or a seed, but it's actually a tip. Listen to me carefully from a Jew. Listen to a Jew today. I'm going to teach you a couple of things you never heard before. Because when you give and you sow a seed, it shouldn't be something that you can dismiss like you do a, a tip. There was no sacrifice involved. Which brings me to a much deeper Jewish thing we call the offering. My Gentile friends, the Goya friends, don't know about offering. They know about seed and harvest, and, and they know about tithes. But the offering is so precious and holy to God. You can't even bring an offering if you haven't tithed, because while you're giving offerings or even seeds and you haven't tithed, it's all going to the tithe. Because God gave the seed to the sower and the bread to the eater. He already gave you a tithe. Before you were born, he allocated all the money you needed, and he gave you tithes. 
when you walk in this room, the money that you, he really gave it to you, to tithe to him, to teach you obedience and faith. And so when it comes to offering, you have, you have to have tithe already. And now you bring an offering and there's no requirement of how much. There's many offerings. There's fruit, first fruits, there's love offerings, there's thanksgiving, many, many offerings. They, when I take tourists to Israel, they always ask me, did Jesus do offerings? Yeah. He didn't do sin offerings, but he did every other offering. When he was born, they sacrificed two doves for him. And it was very normal to bring offerings to God. It is an act of love. Now, the best way I can describe it to my American friends and brothers is this is how I see it. Years ago, before we had Amazon, we used to have Christmas time, you'd go to Toys R Us. And I came as a visitor one time from Africa, and I was at Toys R Us, and I saw civilized, wonderful, well-dressed American ladies about to kill each other over Buzz Lightyear. There were three Buzz Lightyears and five ladies. And they were, they were fighting over that because they were, and I thought, how could it be that important that you guys would go to war over a toy that the child might not even enjoy or appreciate for more than 10 minutes? It's the strangest thing. So I began to under, try to understand why it is so important to them because of the love for that child and that moment that was about to come, they wanted to bless. They wanted to do something as an act of love because that person was so important. And I've noticed when people buy gifts for those you love, when you're in love or dating someone, the effort you'll go to for buying a gift, you find out what it is they like. You find out, you begin to ask questions, and eventually, if they're looking for something that's hard to find, the effort you'll go through to get that one thing, expensive or not, when they finally open that gift and they realize that you went through so much trouble, the deep appreciation, the expression of love is what they read. Now, when you bring an offering to God, it's the same thing. It's an act of love to God. It's an act of sacrifice. God is into sacrifice. It was the woman that gave Two mites that got the attention of Jesus, not the guys that brought the large amounts that were so needed. It was the woman's sacrifice. She could have given one mite. She still was giving half of her possessions, but she gave it all. She gave it all to God, and she made such a sacrifice that Jesus thought it was so important that he'd call his disciples over and make a whole teaching about it because it was so important to God. I can see an angel going right past Joppa, where Peter's on the roof praying, the man of God who's one of the top dogs, the top leaders for God in the kingdom of God, goes right past Peter on his way to a non-saved, non-Jew, Gentile, who gave generously in another harbor town called Caesarea. The angel went right past Peter, who's trying to understand the sheet-like object, trying to figure out what God's trying to tell him, and an angel who could have just explained it to him went right by to Cornelius. Cornelius wasn't expecting it. He's praying and he sees an angel and he's frightened. And the angel says, your giving has come as a memorial offering. The God that creates the universe is so impressed by your generosity. It's not the wealthy that build God's kingdom. It's the generous. Generous people, not the wealthy. A wealthy person that can give 100,000 easily, not necessarily generosity. You know, person, if he's got several million, when you're generous, you can feel, you can feel. And that's what King David said, I won't give to God that which costs me nothing. And there's a time when you have to empty your bank account and give it all like your son Isaac. And if you're Jewish, you understand this, that it's all, 
or nothing sometimes with God for God to release the blessing. He watched Abraham sweat and suffer. He said, go to the mountain. He took that boy and took two servants, two donkeys. Two days, they kept having to camp and sleep on the way looking for this mountain. And all the time, this Abraham's thinking, this old man having sent Ishmael away. And now he's got Isaac, this beautiful boy. And now he's got to kill him. And he's all the way contemplating, but he's going to give it to God. And there comes a time when you love God that he's allowed to have everything you have. And that's why America is as blessed as it is, because our forefathers did that. Our forefathers thought it was that important to pass it on that on our, in our money it says in God we trust. Do we really trust in God this morning? I hope we do, because God has been our helper. Now, what I want to share with you this morning, believe it, I haven't started, is in the book of John chapter 4, and I'm going to condense it now, which is, follows on from what I'm telling you. In John chapter 4, we find Jesus in Jerusalem. And what happens is he's preaching and ministering and, and the disciples say to him, Lord, the people are saying we baptize more than John the Baptist. And the scripture says when Jesus hears this, he says, let's go back to Galilee. Because that was not what he wanted to do. On his way back to Galilee, halfway back, which is a few days walk, there is a place called Samaria. In the middle of Samaria is a place called Sikar. Sikar is a famous place because Jacob who introduced this whole generation of Sumerians, a mixture of Assyrians. Jacob was the one that got, took an Assyrian wife. And so from that came these Samaritans, and they followed the Jewish ways, but the Jews didn't accept them. So he stops in Sikar, and he goes and sits at the well, which is Jacob's well, and his disciples go in to get some food. And while they're in the food, it's middle of the day, it's noon. It's hot, as you can imagine. And so this woman comes out with a pitcher of water. Right there is already a signal of something wrong because women don't go middle of the day to get water unless they, there's some major task going on. They go early morning and late evening when it's cool and they come to get the water. And there's a whole social event many times. But this woman's avoiding people all by herself. And he asks for water because he's got a pitcher. And she spits out her anger and her hurt and wounds. And you, a Jew, speak to me, a Samaritan woman. There's all the hatred in her side of her. Immediately, Jesus knows who she is and that she's had five husbands. There's a thing. Five husbands. I think after five men, you're going to stop blaming the men. So much so, she's now living with the sixth one, knowing full well it's wrong. And she spits out all her hatred and anger to him. She's hurting. She's hurting people hurt other people. They're bitter. And she's spitting out all this anger all the time. And then when she's done all this, and she says to her, well, she says, give me this living water. You keep talking about this. Give it to me. And he says, okay, go call your husband. And she says, I don't have one. And finally, he starts telling her, let's revelation flow. You speak the truth. Once he's revealed this, her demeanor changes. Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Yeah, good one. And so he said, she changes the topic. She still wants to argue and debate. You Jews say we ought to worship God in Jerusalem. We were taught to worship God here in the mountain. Are you greater than that? And so she's really still attacking him. And he says through these words to her, he says, woman, a time is coming. It will neither worship God in this mountain or in Jerusalem, but you'll worship God in spirit and in truth. Remember those words? That's where I pick up my little story in John 4, verse 22. And he says this in verse 22. He says, you Samaritans, Worship what you do not know. We Jews worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. For years I dismissed that because I thought Jesus is that salvation. That's what he's referring to. But I realized he hadn't died. So he wasn't, when he says we, 
worship what we know, that it could not have been. Verse 22, where to go? Verse 22 of John 4. And so we worship, yeah, what we do know, because salvation is from the Jews. Now, let me be clear to you, you Goya friends that are here sitting here today. The day you got born again, you became a Jew. The word Jew means chosen. You didn't choose God, he chose you. You became a joint heir with him. You become to the same household. Al-Qaeda will not cut ahead of, of a Hare Krishna or a Buddhist. They're apparently not even infidels. Only the Christians and Jews are. You are in the same category as a Jew. The Christians are according to these hateful Al-Qaeda people. You don't see them blowing up towers where the Buddhists are, the foreign religions. You don't see them going to other countries like India where there's Hinduism. They don't seem to care about that. They come to America to bring our towers down to attack us. Am I, am I speaking the truth? Why? Because you joint heirs with God's people. You are the same. We are Jews. You are born again. You are Jewish. We're one family. Now, understand this. When Jesus says you worship what you do not know, we Jews worship what we do know. Well, I began to puzzle. What is that you, how is it that we know God and the Samaritans don't know? Well, I began to go to a human level where you get to know someone. You get to meet them and you get to learn to know them. But when you're married to them a long time or been around a long time or went through many things with them, you start to really know them. In my language, we have an idiom, an expression that when you've eaten seven bags of salt together, then you know each other. It's an expression in my language. I don't know how to tell it in English. It doesn't translate well, but that's what it means. And so you go through so much in life. Well, the, what nation has not gone through hell? At the moment, at the moment, let me just bring things in perspective to you. 2,000 years ago, a terrible thing happened in Israel. At the most beautiful time in the history of Israel, the most perfect setting, when Jesus was born, there was never a more beautiful time in Jerusalem. In fact, there was a slogan, if you've not seen a beautiful city, you've never been to Jerusalem. King Herod the Great was one of the most historically famous builders for history, history can tell. The man built a mega city in Caesarea. He built several palaces in the desert. He built Jerusalem with bridges and palaces, and, and he rebuilt the temple. He changed it up because he lifted it up with a temple mount the size of 14 football fields. And he built the temple even bigger than Solomon's temple. It was the time of Jesus absolutely stunning and vibrant. And he was preaching to the Jews all the time. And in Matthew 24, my Lord Jesus said, a more terrible time is coming that has never been or will ever be again. Had he not said ever be again, I would have thought, well, maybe it's the end times. But he's saying a never be again means there's a window. And I thought to the Lord, what could be more terrible than the the Holocaust that my family were, so many of us were killed and my relatives were, and the six million Jews. And the Lord said, I finally opened my understanding that in 70 AD, Jesus said, that day you'll run to the hills. We pray that you're not pregnant in that day because when 
80,000 Romans converged on Jerusalem. They destroyed the city. 70 AD, the nation was scattered until 1948. Almost 2,000 years, the nation was all over the world. And it wasn't just Germany that in the time of the Second World War, they persecuted Jews. They were persecuted all the time. Don't tell me about African slaves. Jews were 400 years they were slaves. They were killed, ostracized constantly. If you're Jewish, you just hate it because you're Jewish. Don't talk to me about racism. <laughs> the, the Palestinians hate you just if you're Jewish. You don't have to be even Orthodox. Just if you're born a Jew, they hate you. And I've lived that life my whole life. People just hate me because I've become a Jewish family. I can't even hide the people somehow find out, they see it, I don't know, but they know. It's the strangest thing. And because they serve God and people hate you, people hate you. You go to work and people stop talking and you walk in the door. They, you can't find your, they take your parking, they blame you, they cause trouble for you, and you don't know what you did wrong. It's because you are Jewish. Because you're a born again believer, you're part of the family. And they hate you because you have the favor of God on your life. Do you understand? You think favor makes you popular? No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. People hate you if you're favored. People try to kill you. That's what they try to do if you favor. They get jealous of you. But God favors you. The blessing of God, God chose you. I don't know what makes him choose you. Many are called, few are chosen. You're not sitting here by chance today. You've got all kinds of troubles. It's true. Stay with me. I'm, I'm going to come to a point. I hope I'm not going to speak too long. I don't, don't even see a clock back there. They've got, you guys have broken that thing. Am I not boring you? Okay. Now, here's the thing. We Jews worship what we know. How do they know God? Because they've been from one hell to another. You look at your life and you go, I can't stand one more thing. I don't know why I keep going through stuff. Always you're going through something because however will you know God if you don't see him in action? When I ask people that are Christians, how do you know that you are born again? They'll recite some jargon Christian thing, they're very cute, and then I'll keep asking until they'll change it up and they'll change it up, and eventually everybody that's truly born again says the same thing. Well, I know God. Well, how do you know him? Uh, because I just know him. Well, tell me how. They all end up saying they've been through something, they saw a hand of God move that they cannot deny. It's through hardship and through difficulty that they saw God save them. We know God, the Jews say, because we've seen victories. We know him because salvation, we sing the songs of salvation, who has, who has drowned the rider in the sea, the God that has closed up the Red Sea, the God that has made a way for us. Right now, they're in one mega war again. Always there's victory through a battle in your own life. You went through so many things because that's the way you got to know God. So when you whine and complain, God's watching how much you love and depend upon him. And God has no problem with the storms of your life. Jesus knew full well when he told the disciples, let's go to the other side. He knew full well there'd be a storm. He didn't tell them about the storm because if he did, if the Lord had told us about our storms, we would put all our faith and preparation into the storm and forget about the other side. So he doesn't tell us about the storms. He prepares us with a faith. That's why he said, do you still have no faith? 
because he had prepared them and he had put the word into them. You don't get the word and preparation and all the faith inside of you just so you can go home with it. No, no, you're going to fight a battle somewhere and your faith has to shine in that storm because he's unchangeable. That's how you know God. That's how you know who he is and you worship him. When you come here, you come through a victory. When you worship God and start reciting what the Lord has done for you, when you start remembering what God has done, remembering all his benefits and how God healed your child and how he broke through financially for you and how he healed your marriage and how he fixed it, gave you gas in your car and you had no gas, how he did one miracle you can't explain, then you worship him because now you know him. Because salvation is from the Jews. You know, Jesus said in Mark 9 verse 50, he said that we are the salt of the earth. And if we lose the saltiness, we have no value. Is that true? Remember that? Then I discovered recently (laughs) the verse before that, which I could not believe has been there all the time. (laughs) Verse 49 says, these are the words of Jesus. Everyone, everyone is salted. By fire. So when you're going through fire and hell, God's just making you salty. (laughs) So you don't lose your saltiness, that you have an effect. Because when you're going through fire and you see God in action, boy, your testimony perks up a whole lot. When you've seen God do something for you, you've got no problem witnessing. While everything's okay, you're a dead witness. You don't want to talk about God. You're too busy doing your own little thing. But when you come through a crisis and God's help something, then you can't wait to tell the waitress or the waiter or the person, the bus stop. You can't wait to tell somebody what God has done. So fire is there to make you salty, baby. Mm. If you ain't salty, it's coming. None of you are here by chance today. All of you go through some sort of crisis. All of you have mistakes, failures, difficulties, every one of you. Every one of you have human God. God is so gracious, so kind, so patient with all your struggles and all the things you're going through. What God's really focused on is the heart. What's inside of you? When men look on the outside, God looks on the inside. What's the motive? What's really behind all this? We, we think that to be a good Christian must make no mistakes or do nothing wrong or do no sin. If you say you have no sin, 1 John 1, 8 says you're lying. We're saved by grace and God keeps us day to day. And there are some things God doesn't even set you free. Paul sought the Lord three times, three times about the thorn in his flesh. And God said, it's okay, my grace is enough. Thank you. Could you just set me free? Uh, no, my grace, I'll take care of it. You won't, I'll, I'll watch over you. And God helps you manage your struggles if you want to manage them. If your right eye bothers you, pluck it out. There's a behavior you have to learn. I'm writing a book on it, on restoration of healing people that have fallen. And that's one of my chapters is how to manage your struggles. As God told Paul, because there's a way to manage it carefully in your journey that you to keep you always aware of who you need that you're not self-sufficient, that you're completely, completely dependent and abandoned on the good Lord. And you're sitting here today, and you think you just happened to come to church on a Sunday. No, no, no. God planned it all. You didn't come here by chance. God picked you. God picked you. And you've got, always got a complaint and a trouble. It's normal. It's life. You get this one fixed, you'll go to the next one. It's always something, because that's how God will display his greatness in your life. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. The whole kingdom comes in a can. Let it sink in. 
The whole kingdom comes in a can. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Am I speaking the truth? The excitement is overwhelming. Take it down a notch, guys. Whew, Lord Jesus, help us. <laughs> all right, I think I've taught enough one morning. You'll wait, lock those doors. We're going to prophesy now. I'll give you 20 seconds to repent of all your sins. You know, the goodness of God is you don't even have to gnash your teeth or weep. Just got to confess, and he'll forgive you instantly. There's nothing like it. I have conversations with the Lord. Years ago, he told me that him and I were incompatible, and he wasn't going to change. So, but this last weekend, he said a very odd thing to me, stunned me. He said, go ahead and hold me accountable for my promises. Then I'll know you believe what I say. Yeah, that's what I said. And I couldn't, I've recited it carefully to every word he said because it was so stunning. Hold me accountable. Then I'll know you believe what I say. I thought, no, that doesn't sound biblical. And then I found, well, prove me in this. That, that's, that, that's pretty much the same thing. So it's just another way of saying it. Hold me accountable. If he gave you a promise, hold him to it. Then you believe what he's saying. Don't start telling him, I don't believe what you say because you don't keep your word. No, I believe what you say. You better do what you said. He's okay with that. Then he knows you believe it. This is something he told me last week and was stunned me. I'm still trying to get over it. But we've had many conversations, and one of them was it really, he really resents us asking forgiveness for the same thing more than once. He doesn't like it either when we, because we nullify the blood of his son that paid such a great price. And he doesn't like us with a testimony. We call testimony reciting all the wicked things we did. He hates that. He just, tell, just said that, like Paul, I was worse than all sinners. But don't tell us what you did because it's under the blood. He doesn't want to, he, he, he's really forgotten it. And he want to make, it, make him know it again. It doesn't please God. And even more offensive is talking about someone else's sin. You don't even know if they're forgiven and it's under their blood. And you keep reciting it like you, like you think that you have the right to. So I'm, I ask you to shut up about somebody else. Don't even tell your husband or wife. Don't recite anything that's in the past. It's not your business. Can, can, we, can we agree on that? This church is 25 years of celebration, but it's turning a corner, a serious corner. And God is really going to add and fill the house. It's going to change the logistics and the atmosphere, and I don't want you to whine and complain. I want you to find what your task is, because God's going to add people. There's, there's a whole volume of people out there looking for a home. And this is where God wants to do something in this house. Let Bethel be the dwelling. I don't know if you know that any Jewish word with E-L in it means God. So if you have Bet-El, Bet is the dwelling or the place of living. Bet-El, the house, the home of God. Isra, which means to have contend with, having bumped heads, having, having hit or something, uh, confronting. Depends what sentence is in. But Israel is having confronted, dealt with God. So everything with God is El. Hebrew is an amazing language. It, it changes like shalom, changes with what you put with it or what sentence you're using in it. It's a complete state of well-being. You know, in the Hebrew, we only, have, <laughs> Hebrew hasn't changed. It's the only language in the world that hasn't changed. Same Hebrew for Jesus, the same Hebrew we have today. Exactly the same. No slang, nothing's changed, exact same words. And, and it, we, we are taught several things that I come in culture that's very normal for us. Uh, we don't, we're not allowed to say God's name because it's, you know, it's 
punishable. It's one of the commandments. Don't take my name in vain. So they don't want to use. They're scared to use it. We have this. You see throughout the word how fearful they are. If they've seen an angel, they think they've seen God. And when Gideon, (laughs) the angel said, suck it up, boy. You're not going to die. You didn't see God. Just calm it down. Because people always feel they've seen God, they'll die. That's what we taught. And so with the same with God's name. So when the blessing came from Aaron, which Moses told him to say, it's three lines and two verbs, and he says, may the Lord bless you. Remember that one? It doesn't say may the Lord bless you at all because the Lord is Adonai. And it doesn't say Adonai, it says Halachim, which is God's name. It's three Hebrew letters, which we read from this way to that way, and it means was, is, will be. It's the different phonetic of the, God's name is, is omni, every present every way you can name his name. So it's uh, Yahweh, bless you. And the blessing in that Hebrew is, is to really do you so good and keep you. To keep is to shield you, not to have COVID or poverty or hardship. May put a wall around you of utmost protection. That's the first line. May he make his light, Yahweh make his light to shine upon you. And we Jews know what that means because you're safe when light is on you, not in the darkness. You cannot be attacked. You're always safe and you have light and you have so much, everything around you is visible and it's a whole state of, of tremendous uh, victory. And, may, and then give you uh, uh, grace. Now, the grace we use is not the grace you understand. This grace is like a little, a little ant walking over the table. You have such power over the ant, you can squash it. It's just grace. You can let it go. And that's what God would be mindful of how human show us grace because may God make his light shine upon you and give you grace because you're so human. You fail so much and just show you grace. The last line is may he make his face shine upon you. When God's face shines upon you, nothing can be in your way. When God himself shines his face upon you and give you, and that's what I was telling you about this now, and give you shalom. Shalom is a complete state of well-being, not just peace. When Friday comes, which we always say, Shabbat, Shabbat Shalom, which is we're blessing you. It's a blessing. It's not just a greeting. It's a blessing. Shalom. We're blessing with a complete state of well-being. Shabbat Shalom. You're speaking wonderful blessing on Shabbat, which is the Sabbath. I just thought you might like to know. 